from KALW San Francisco and PRX. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. Some binging is best avoided. Inflection Point binging can be good for you. Here's an episode from our back catalog. Binge away. I'm willing to shave my head to bet that in puritanical Texas, if you were to openly wave a dildo around, you'd get in trouble for that faster than having a loaded concealed gun in your backpack. That's Jessica Jin, who led the protests last fall against the new campus carry gun law at University of Texas at Austin. I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point, conversations with women changing the status quo. Jessica galvanized her own army at UT Austin of dildo waivers to fight absurdity with absurdity and raise the question, how does arming more people with guns stop gun violence? She didn't have to shave her head after all. University of Texas said the protests fell under the protection of free speech. But she did have to endure other repercussions. There's a hashtag that goes with this movement. And if you want to hear me say it, well, you'll just have to go to inflectionpointradio.org and you'll see it there. Welcome to the program, Jessica. Hi, thanks. We are going to talk about August 2016, when the state of Texas passed their Senate Bill 11, or it came into being right before the school year started at University of Texas at Austin, of which you were an alum. Um, and this law permitted the permitted and permits the concealed carry of guns on college campuses. It's called the Campus Carry Law. So what what was it about this law that bothered you? What was different about what had already been in place? And what did you do when you heard about it? I actually didn't know anything about the law. I just had heard that there was a big stink being raised about it the year before. Um, I actually was pretty indifferent to it. I didn't really think much about the gun, gun violence prevention conversation. I was not part of it at all. I was just stuck in Austin traffic one day and feeling very frustrated because I was late to something. And I was listening to public radio and some pundits on the radio were talking about, this is in October, 2015, and the pundits on the radio were talking about the shooting in Oregon that had killed about 10 students and about how um, just the week after there was a student that died at Texas Southern University and then also another student that was shot at Northern Arizona University. And they were just talking about the gun violence epidemic on, on and around college campuses. And they were saying, there's just nothing we can do about it. It's just a thing that Americans have to deal with. We're too far gone. We just have to learn to cope and prepare. And perhaps it was just my own frustrations directed at Austin traffic, but I rolled my eyes and I said, what a bunch of dildos. They really don't think that there's anything we can do about this. Like, what? that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. So I went home and I talked to my friends about it. And I said, you know, I heard these dildos on the radio talking about how there's just nothing that can be done about gun violence. And speaking of what schools are trying to do about gun violence, UT is going to have students with loaded weapons in their guns in classrooms next year. And speaking of dildos, I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to shave my head to bet that in puritanical Texas, if you were to openly wave a dildo around, you'd get in trouble for that faster than having a loaded concealed gun in your backpack. And it was just this absurdist idea that I posed to my friends. And they were like, I don't know, you look it up, Jessica. And I was like, okay, I will. So I dug into the Texas state law book. Well, actually I dug into the university rule book first. And they said, when it comes to obscenities, we need you to defer to Texas state law. So I go in there and I discover that it is actually considered an obscenity to openly brandish a harmless floppy dildo. However, they keep passing and writing laws that proliferate the idea that violence is to be expected every single day. 
and that the only way to to react to it appropriately is violence. So I was just like, you know what? Everybody should just make fun of how ridiculous this is by strapping a big dildo to their backpack and going to school once this law is enacted, like nothing's different and see how people react. And I actually didn't really know what I was getting into. I thought I was just cracking a dumb joke and it went viral overnight and I was suddenly branded as a gun control activist and I had a lot of learning to do. How did you feel about this overnight recognition for yourself when you thought you were just doing something that would be kind of reactionary and funny? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Initially, I told the reporters that were kind of filling up my inbox, I was like, can you give me a day? I need to do my research. I know that now I have a platform and now I have an opportunity to say something thoughtful and I can't mess this up, right? This started out as a dumb joke, but there's a lot of responsibility in having and being asked questions about such an important issue. And the fact that I always distanced myself from dealing with it. I was like many Americans who were like, as soon who knew as soon as I put an opinion about gun control out there, I would have to fight about it and argue about it every day. So I didn't want to do it. That's why I never did the research, why I never wanted to engage in the conversation. And because I fell face first into it, I had to. Um, so I've learned a lot over the last year and I think that there's no going back now. I know too much and I've seen too much and I've met too many people who've been affected by the issue and there's no way out for me now. (laughs) Did did the manufacturers see this as a marketing opportunity? They did, they did. And I had lots of friends who work in advocacy and nonprofits and um, stuff like that. And they were saying, be very careful because you don't want to accidentally turn this whole thing into a giant sexpo. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. So initially I was very careful about what I would promise sponsors. I was like, I don't know what I can give you in return because we have very important messaging to push forward, but you are totally welcome to shout from the rooftops that you're helping us and print your labels as giant as you want on anything that you send us and we'll do what we can, but we don't know, you know, there's nobody's written a book about how to organize a dildo protest or how to grow a dildo organization. So I was just really trying to play it safe. And I think we could have collected a lot more toys if at the beginning I was like, sure, we'll just take your toys and, you know, splash your logo on all of our shirts and stuff like that. And But I thought I wanted, I felt like we had lightning in a bottle here when it comes to fighting absurdity with absurdity. Well, it sounds like what you didn't, didn't want the message of the, of the dildo to take over the fact that the real message here is allowing students to carry guns on campus is something that you see as a problem. Right, right. I didn't want this whole thing to be like, we're actually fighting for dildo rights. Yes, that's fun. The sex positivity component of this is super important, especially when you're talking about actual campus safety where, you know, campus sexual assault is a big deal. Um, You know, a lot of, this is a female-led movement and a lot of women carrying around sex toys is empowering in its own way. But the core of the issue is that we're talking about what day-to-day safety is and what safety on campuses is. So... Um, It's been a really fine line to tread, but we're figuring it out, I think. Are you continuing to lead this movement? You're living in in the Bay Area now. You're no longer on on campus or around campus in Austin. So how are you doing it from here? Um, I am really working on passing the baton to students who are actually on the ground. I don't want to be a bottleneck to the creativity and the energy on college campuses. And I think that people are funny as hell. Like you see everything that's going on on social media. And you know that the there's an abundance of creativity and this kind of revolutionary energy and just pissed off young people everywhere. And for me to just be like, no, I'm going to run this from 
California where I get to be insulated from all this stuff now and just tell you what to do, I really don't want it to be that way. So really, I'm asking students what they're dealing with on their campuses when it comes to safety in general and things that where the where guns are not the answer and letting them just run with it. I'm trying to make it my job to make sure that they know that this is their movement, that this is the community's movement. It's not, it was my dumb joke, but it's everybody's cause. So that's what I've been focusing on lately is just really making sure that everybody feels like they have ownership over it. What do you think caused you to feel such a personal sense of responsibility? I mean, I get that it started off as like, wouldn't it be funny if, (laughs) and I've got, I have lots of those conversations, right? But they don't necessarily result in thousands of people coming out on behalf of the idea. I think gun violence is a super intersectional issue. What I discovered when all of this broke out was the amount of hate that came out of the protest. Um, A lot of people came at me with super misogynistic remarks, super racist remarks, a lot of really ignorant things about how sexual assault occurs. And it was just really toxic, you know, and they were talking about how it's not the responsible law-abiding gun owners, it's people who are mentally ill. It's not responsible law-abiding gun owners, it's people of color, you know, and it was just a lot of this misinformation, this mix of really toxic, dangerous things when if you put guns in the mix, it becomes volatile and deadly. So, um, although I have never had a bullet whiz by my head and I've never had a gun pointed at me, I'm a woman of color and I have suffered a lot of garbage growing up in America. Also, you know, I've lost friends to struggles with mental health. I and my friends and a lot of my fellow organizers are sexual survivors ourselves, and we went through this mostly in college. And as a woman of color growing up with a lot of discrimination, I know what it's like to have to like go about your day as a somewhat marginalized person um, where people are constantly trying to make you feel like the other. And so when this gun conversation came about and it was being proposed as the solution to sexual assault, the solution to anybody who feels un- unsafe on campus, it seemed like they haven't, hadn't actually asked people who have ever felt unsafe on campus. They hadn't asked the minority communities. They hadn't asked the LGBTQ communities. They hadn't asked women. They just said, this is what safety is. This is what safety looks like. And this is how you will be respected in society. And to me, I was just like, that is the most blind, like, ign- like not thoughtful thing that I've ever heard about how, to, how communities should function. And um, when you propose guns as the ultimate safety measure, you're skipping over hundreds of other conversations about why people feel unsafe in the first place. And you jump to this blanket solution that is not practical or not realistic and doesn't take into account the experiences of people who are actually in danger every single day of their lives or feel fear every single day of their lives. So it's really insulting for Um, legislators to just stomp in and say, here you go, here's a gun, everything's great now, when it's not. You know, it's really just this placeholder for progress. I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point. My guest is Jessica Jinn. She led the protest against the campus carry gun law that went into effect in fall of 2016 in Texas. Her weapon of choice, a dildo. Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. 
And could you share an example of what you're talking about in terms of growing up and feeling marginalized growing up there? Um, I went to an agriculture high school on the edge of San Antonio. There were people driving lifted trucks with ball sacks hanging off of the back with smokestacks that billowed black smoke and flying Confederate flags off of their trucks. And there were barns next to our next to our administration buildings. And every time it would rain, you would smell manure across campus. And on the weekends, people would go drink beer and shoot inanimate objects on their families' branches, you know? And it was fun. And I didn't think much of it. I was just like, this is charming Texas culture. I kind of love it. Someday I'm going to get a gun because everyone else here has a gun. It's a normal thing. Um, but, you know, growing up, there were always jokes on the playground about, you know, how do you say hello in Chinese, Jessica? Can you pull your eyes back even further? Can you see out of your eyes, you know? And people who would be like, you know, Jessica's a great person to copy off of in class because if you copy her test, you'll get an A. So a lot of the racist hate that I was getting that was like, go back to China where your countrymen are in unmarked graves because they didn't have guns. Um, you're a socialist and a communist and you should go back to Asia and all of these things, I mean, it wasn't even surprising. It was just kind of like, okay, I've heard all of this crap all of my life. Um, but it really just goes to show that these are the loudest advocates for gun culture. And they have this significant fear of people who are different from them. And these really uh, kind of harebrained ideas about what people who are different than them are like, which is probably what contributes to them stockpiling weapons, right? They don't represent the average law-abiding gun owner. They are the extremists, and that's what we're dealing with. Did, did you ever did you ever talk to your parents about the kinds of things that kids were saying at school, and did, did they have anything to say about it? No, I didn't. My mom was actually just kind of saying ridiculous, th very Chinese mom type things, like, you know, if every Chinese person lined up in a row and spat on that person once, they'd drown in three seconds. <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> it just kind of be like, you know, don't underestimate the power of Chinese people, you know? Well, that book about tiger bombs hadn't come out at the time that you were being raised, but would you say that your mom was a tiger bomb? I totally referred to my mother as a tiger mom, and I think she'd be proud of it too. Um, but there totally is relevance to this, right? Because I think the tiger mom philosophy of raising an Asian American kid is like, there's going to be a lot of suffering in, you know, the tiger mom, my my tiger mom, just like the tiger mom who wrote the book about being a tiger mom, sat next to me when I was in second grade at the piano bench. It was like 1030 at night. I was crying. I couldn't play this passage on the piano. And I was like, mom, can I just go to bed? This is too hard. I hate it. And I was just covered and just soaked in my own tears. And she made me repeat that passage maybe another 50 times until I was able to play it. And the joy that we both experienced when we were able to finally play, when I was finally able to get through that one bar without a mistake, made all of those tears just metaphorically dry up. You know, it was as if I hadn't cried at all. It was like I actually did something. And like, I think the thing that um, Tiger Moms teach you <laughs> is that everything is really worth it in the end. Um, the pain and the suffering and the tears that you go through really makes sense as soon as you've accomplished something. So I think it makes... Asian Americans in particular, extremely resilient members of society. And the stereotype that we are the model, model minority and that we'll stay silent and quiet and not ruffle feathers and we'll get things done and we're productive. I mean, that's not exactly entirely accurate for a lot of people, but also I think Asian Americans are actually a formidable group of society because as soon as they're politically activated, there's really no stopping them, right? <laughs>
Well, these women, you know, you're, you're, it started on a college campus. These women are going to graduate and go on into the workforce and potentially have other platforms. Do you have ideas about where that message can go past college campuses? Because this is obviously not just a college problem. This is an everywhere problem. Yeah, this is an everywhere problem. It's really about what safety is. Um, I really don't think that a dick joke is going to be funny forever. Even I don't think it's funny anymore. You know, I'm like, I've been inundated by all these sex toys for a year now and they're less funny to me. So I don't think that's sustainable. But what I do think is sustainable is saying you can't just tell everybody that guns are the way to make society safe. It's not a casual day-to-day solution for safety. It's impractical. It's unrealistic. And let's talk about what safety really is, right? Like your chances of getting shot by a mass shooter in a classroom is like almost the same as getting struck by lightning. So what really does affect the safety of young people and the general public every day? It's really struggles with mental health, you know, struggles with this toxic masculinity that makes men think that they can come at women and tell them how to behave and how to keep themselves safe. Um, and it's really a host of other things that are that have nothing to do with guns. So when guns are being proposed as the ultimate solution for safety, it is exhausting. And I think the goal of this organization going forward is really about reclaiming the definition of safety. It's not for the gun industry to decide what safety is. Well, what was your reaction to the news of who our next president is? You know, this climate of absurdity, which I've been steeped in for the last year because of my dildo activism, it wasn't surprising at all. I think there is this giant assault on fact and reason and inclusion and identity that's been going on, which I've been fully aware of just through this activism because of the amount of negative messaging that um, messages that we've been receiving. But what's funny about this thing about Campus Carry is that they've dragged this anti-intellectual fight into the wrong arena. They've totally messed with the wrong people. These are university professors are the people who are working on making the world a better place, working on dismantling every historical ill that we've been dealing with that leads to the problems that we have today. They are not talking about how to make guns more prevalent everywhere. They're talking about a future where we shouldn't need guns, where if we're if we have made enough progress, why should we feel in danger? Like they're envisioning and working on a future where everybody is safe enough to not need a gun. So it's completely insulting for lawmakers to just stomp on in and say, no, you're wrong about what the future is supposed to look like and what you guys are working towards and what you guys are experts in. You guys are wrong about history. You guys are wrong about science. You guys are wrong about the statistics of violence in America. Here's actually what it is. And it's and the professors are like, who do you think you are? You know, we, we're at the top of our game in our respective fields. And so for you to tell us that our opinions on the way the world works are completely incorrect, I mean, what, what did you think you were getting yourself into, right? So a lot of these professors, it's exciting because now they're dedicating their research and they're like, you know, integrating little things about gun violence prevention and researching safety in general and talking about alternative, restorative, transformative justice measures. And it's really like you woke these professors up to a really big issue and you've totally messed up with messed with the wrong crowd. What, what's the best advice that you've been given about speaking out for what you believe in? At the very beginning of all of this, I didn't know what I believed in. I didn't know 
what to say about the gun violence prevention conversation because it, I had accepted the normalcy of gun culture in America too. I actually thought I was someday going to be very much part of it. I had kind of decided that I felt hopeless about gun violence in general and that there was nothing that I could really do about it, which is why I hadn't thought about productive ways to move the conversation forward. So when all of this broke out and people started asking me lots of questions about what I thought about gun culture, I panicked. And I ran to my friends and I said, I don't know what I think about all of this. What do you think about all of this? What should I think about all of this? And they helped me work through my ideas that I hadn't taken the time and space to confront. And eventually, you know, weeks into this, I was still running to them and asking them, can you look over this thing that I wrote? Can I vet these things that I'm about to say in public with you? And they got so tired of it. They were like, Jessica, shut up and go away. The reason why your movement took off is because you had something thoughtful to say that resonated with a lot of people. And you're a college-educated, brilliant young woman. And if you yourself had vet, have vetted something and have decided that it's probably okay and acceptable and fine, you don't need to ask 50 other people to make sure that it's okay. You're probably saying something that is going to resonate with someone. And so that kind of push from my friends of them saying, leave me alone, Jessica, stand on your own two feet and own your opinions. It sounds like a simple thing to learn, but it, it takes it actually takes a lot to put into practice. And so that was a big learning point for me. And, you know, a lot of people also say that protest and doing things in an absurd, funny, obnoxious way is not a serious way to get things done and it's not going to accomplish anything. But I think that the cultural conversations about gun culture need to start now. I take a lot of inspiration from the anti-smoking campaigns of the 80s, you know, where for generations before, smoking was the coolest, sexiest thing to do, and everybody did it. But as soon as people started saying, hey, actually, that's not cool, it's not healthy, I don't like it, it's not sexy, and I won't date you if you're a smoker, and if you're going to smoke, do it outside away from my children and everyone I know and love, then the legislation quickly followed. And it's really that attitude change about what is cool, what is American, what actually is safe, what's practical, um, that need to start now. Um, so I don't expect anything to happen overnight. I'm hoping that an immediate measurable thing is that if anybody is completely overzealous and irresponsible with the way that they tout gun culture, a dick joke immediately follows. And that can be like a small victory there, but it's really about starting the cultural conversations. And there are people out there lobbying and writing laws and doing the research and securing the funding, and all of those roles are important. But the role in creating conversations and kind of bending the way that people perceive gun culture is just as important because without that, the funding's not going to come. People aren't going to be paying attention. People aren't going to be questioning their own values. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. That was Jessica Jin, who led the movement to end the campus carry gun law in Texas. That's our inflection point for today. Is there a woman changing the status quo you'd like to hear from? Let us know at inflectionpointradio.org. And while you're there, I invite you to become a patron of Inflection Point, like Alan Day Green. And Alan, if I mispronounce your name, let me know and I'll do it again next week. Whose contributions are helping bring the voices and views of powerful women to the ears of everyone. And you can too at inflectionpointradio.org. We're on Facebook at Inflection Point Radio. Follow us and follow me on Twitter at L.A. Schiller. 
To find out more about the guests you heard today on Inflection Point, go to inflectionpointradio.org. Inflection Point is produced at the studios of KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco and delivered to public radio stations nationwide by PRX. Find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and NPR One. And give us a review. We'd love that. Our engineer and producer is Eric Wayne. I'm your host, Lauren Schiller. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 